you have one of the Pew Bibles, we're going to be on page 824. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew 19, and we're going to be looking uh, through verses, well, reading, I should say, verses 3 through 6. And as you turn there, I would just like for us to notice and observe that in giving this response, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees' question about divorce. So I just want you to observe that even as we read this text. And if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. So Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You can be seated as we pray. Father, We look to you. You are the source of our help and of our aid. We ask that in tackling such an important and yet sensitive topic, we pray and we ask that you would be our guide, that you would be the one who is leading us, and that you would be the one who is teaching us. So we pray and we ask, Father, as your people, that you would use your spirit to illumine our minds, to understand and to believe the things that you have taught us in your word. Help me, Father, to be clear in the things I communicate and help all of us to receive these things from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So before we begin our sermon this morning, just by the way, our sermon's going to be on the the subject of gender and particularly tackling transgenderism. Um, So, in giving a talk such as this, let me just make some opening remarks. The first of these is a concept called the Lerman, okay? So, one of Alyssa's professors spoke of, sometimes he might speak in chapel or something like that, and he would give a Lerman. And the idea of a Lerman is it's a lecture combined with a sermon. And I think he would make some sort of remark like, you know, if it's, it's a Lerman in the sense that, you know, it doesn't have to be as sophisticated as a lecture, Uh, But, you know, you can kind of break the normal conventions of a sermon, and so you have a lot of freedom to do kind of whatever you want. And so that's kind of how I feel this morning. It's going to feel part lecture, part part sermon. Um, It's going to kind of be a combination of these things. Um, It's not going to be a conventional sermon that follows a text or something like that. And it it probably will feel a little bit information heavy just because there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, The other remark that I wish to make at the intro is that this really is a sensitive subject the subject of gender and transgenderism. And perhaps there are some in this room, or those of you watching online, that would struggle with this issue, whether personally or because you know someone who would identify as transgender. And I just want to say at the very outset that you are welcome here. You're not out of place. What we believe here at this church is that all of us are equally broken and in need of Jesus Christ's healing in the gospel. And so I I would like to say to you that you are welcome here, even before we begin to talk about these issues, because this is a place for sinners. 
This is a place for people who struggle, and this is a place for people who are broken. All of us are on level ground before the foot of the cross, and I just want you to know that. So if you struggle with this issue, whether personally or because of a family member, you know a family member or a friend who might identify as transgender, I, I would like to commend you for coming and hearing me, and I would like to thank you in advance for hearing and listening to what I have to say from the Bible. And I hope that all of us are blessed by leaning into a hard subject such as gender and transgenderism as we hear from God's word and as we make some remarks as it relates to the current moment that we find ourselves in. So before we get into the meat of the discussion, I would like to, to define some terms for us, just three simple terms, but I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page before we begin. So the first term is the word sex, okay? And the word sex here, the way that I'm using it, it refers to one's anatomy or one's biology, okay? So you, you're either, uh, you either have a male body or a female body, okay? The second term that I would like to define is the term gender identity, and this refers to an individual's personal sense of identity as masculine or feminine, okay? So we have your body, it can be male or female, and we have your gender identity. This is how you personally, internally perceive yourself, and that could be masculine or feminine. Transgenderism then takes place when these two things don't match up with one another, okay? And it's kind of a catch-all term to describe the, I guess you could call it the phenomenon where people's biological sex does not line up with their gender identity, so you hear phrases like, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Those would be instances of transgenderism. And it could manifest itself in a number of ways. So it could be someone who personally, privately struggles with this issue, okay, uh, and nobody knows about it. It could refer to those who might engage in something like cross-dressing, or if you're a man identifying as a woman, uh, you might start wearing makeup or something like that. It could refer to those who have made a little bit more advancement in the sense that they're taking hormone pills or puberty blockers in children. And it could also refer to those who have kind of gone all the way in the sense that they have actually undergone surgery to align their bodies with their gender identity. Okay? And I don't have time to tackle all of those in turn, but the, the fundamental question that I wish to address at the outset of the sermon is, can you change your gender? Can you change your gender? That's, that's essentially the question before us as it relates to the transgender movement. So the argument of the transgender ideology, very simply put, goes like this. It is true that every single person has either a male or a female body. That's true. However, your gender identity is, you don't take your clues from your body, but your gender identity is quite separate from your body. And so your gender identity, remember, is your internal knowledge or sense of whether you're a male or female, which means then that the determining factor in whether you're a male or female is not by taking clues from your body, but it's by looking inward into yourself. And that inner sense of, your, of the knowledge of yourself determines your gender identity, Okay. I hope that you can follow me in that. So basically what I'm saying is that your body is male or female, yes, but your gender identity doesn't necessarily need to correspond. Your gender identity could in fact be opposite from your biological sex because your gender identity comes from your inner sense of who you are, whether you're male or female. So transgender ideology basically essentially says that if your gender identity does not match your biological sex, then it would be appropriate and right for you to undergo physical things, whether that be hormone pills or surgery, in order to get your body to align with your gender identity. So just to give a very simple example, 
If you are born a biological male, but you come to identify as a female, then it would be right and appropriate for you to undergo physical things. So again, the hormone pills or, or surgery in order to get your body to align with your gender identity. So that's, how, that's what the transgender movement proposes. That's what they, um, that's what they, uh, yeah, that's what they promote and that's what they teach. And essentially, it's to be celebrated according to our culture. And if you come up against this in any way, shape, or form, then you're likely to be labeled as bigoted or transphobic or some other undesirable label such as that. So that's kind of what transgender ideology teaches. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verse 27. And this particular phrase that we're going to look at was quoted by Jesus in the passage that we read from the book of Matthew. And what we have to remember as Christians, and I am stating the obvious, but we are people who belong to Christ, and so we allow him and his scriptures to determine for us our sexual ethic. That is our starting point, and that is our blueprint. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God talks about how he has created mankind, all human beings, in his image. And then he says, male and female, he created them, which indicates to us that there are only two categories of people as it relates to gender in the world. There are only males and there are only females. God has created humanity to come in two types, male and female. Okay, that's verse 27. And then in verse 28, God commands humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that can mean a whole lot of, or that does mean a whole lot of things. But one of the things that that command entails is the production of offspring. Okay? One of the things that Adam and Eve, as male and female, were called to do was to produce offspring. Now, in order for that to occur, obviously, the anatomy of the man and the anatomy of the woman needed to complement one another so that, in coming together, they could produce offspring. So just to make a very simple observation is that the way that the man and the woman were distinguished from one another, amongst other things, was by their biology, Man, Adam was a man because of his biological body, and Eve was a woman because of her biological body. In other words, their biology indicates their maleness and their femaleness in Genesis chapter 1. And then as we move to Genesis chapter 2, what we see is that the man and the woman are also given social roles. They're given distinct callings, responsibilities, duties, and abilities And what we see is that the man is called to be the head. He's called to be the leader. He's called to be the protector and the provider for his family unit. And we see the woman, we see Eve, and she is given a particular role as the helper or the complement to Adam, and she will play a particular role in the bearing and the nurturing of their offspring. And so the only thing I want to say here is that the social roles that man and woman are given correspond to the biological bodies that they were given. Okay, just to state the obvious again, man's social function that he was given in the garden corresponds to his biological body, and Eve's social function that she was given in the garden corresponds to her biological body. And I feel in some ways that I'm preaching to the choir, we, we know this, we understand this, we take our cues from Jesus and from the Bible, from Genesis in particular, and so we understand that there is a correspondence, there is a match between one's biological sex and one's gender identity. That's how God initially created and designed humanity. I would like for us to turn to one other text in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22.5. You can turn there with me just a few pages over. 
It's on page 164 in the Pew Bibles, Deuteronomy 22.5. And I understand that we're turning to an Old Testament law. When we come to the Old Testament law, I understand that there's debate as to how Old Testament laws apply to New Testament Christians. But let me just say two things in regards to that. Number one is that this sexual ethic, I do believe, is picked up by New Testament writers, and so it does have application for us. Number two, that even when we read Old Testament laws, a lot of the time, even if they're not binding upon us as a law, they're instructive to us as a teacher. And so it teaches us, in, in this case, how God has designed man and woman to function. Let me read Deuteronomy 22.5. It says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So what this isn't saying is that, you know, if you're married, you know, and, and, and you're a woman, that you can't borrow your husband's coat. I don't think it's saying that, you know, for instance, that a, that a young girl can't wear a blue shirt or something like that. I think what it's saying is that the way that you present yourself, the way that you express yourself, particularly in your dress, should not go contrary to your biological sex. In other words, you should not dress, you should not present yourself, you should not express yourself in such a way that you are expressing yourself opposite to the gender that you were born with. Okay? You should not express yourself in such a way that it would go contrary to the biological sex that you were born with. God expects us, God expects his people for their, the way that they identify themselves and the way that they express themselves to correspond with the biological sex that they were created with. And second, I think that we should do this in order to not confuse the people around us. One of, one of the, the important things about this commandment is that, is that the way that we dress and the way that we express ourselves is important because it indicates to those around us of whether we are male or female. Okay? So you can think of examples of where that might be important. But let me put it very, very plainly. God is against any actions or behaviors that contradict or confuse his good order in the creation of mankind as male and female. So again, to state perhaps the obvious to most of us, but perhaps not to broader society, is that it, if you were born a male, then God intends for you to be a male, and that's, that should be your identity. And if likewise, if you're born a female then God intends for you to be a female, and thus that should be your identity. Okay? I think this teaching is, is fairly clear from the opening pages of the Bible. We've turned to Deuteronomy 25 as well. I think this sexual ethic is picked up on in other passages later on in God's revelation as well. So just switching gears just slightly, I think one of the things that's interesting about the transgender movement is that it, it, it makes this move, okay? So basically, initially, initially what they do is they divide the mind from the body, okay? So basically they say, okay, okay, we need to kind of separate these things out. Okay, your body is your biological sex. That, that's biologically determinable. But your mind, the way that you conceive yourself, that's completely detached from and separate from your biological sex. Okay, your gender identity does not need to follow suit. It doesn't even need to take clues from your biological sex. It's, it's something that's completely separate from and independent of your biological body. So it kind of drops away the body for a moment. And they say, okay, so then who is the true you? As it relates to your gender identity, how do you know whether you are male or you are female? And what they say is that it depends on your internal knowledge of yourself. How you perceive yourself, that is your gender identity. Okay? And now once you have established your gender identity, watch this, this is what they do. Once you have established your gender identity, and remember your body cannot give you clues, and your body is not helpful in this, in determining this, 
They bring the body back, and they say, okay, now that I have determined my gender identity, now I need my body to correspond with how I perceive myself. Now that I have established my gender identity, now I need my body to come into conformity with and subjugation to how I perceive myself, whether male or female. The point that I'm trying to make is that even though they want to say that biology is not important, in the end, biology ends up being important because they want to change their bodies to match up with the way that they perceive themselves. The body and the mind cannot be separated after all. So the key question is this. Okay, if that's the case, the body and the mind are connected, the body and the mind have some sort of connection and some sort of important correspondence to the point where if you would identify as the gender opposite your biology, that you want your body to be transformed so that it comes into alignment with the way that you view yourself, the question that I have and the question that other evangelical leaders have is this. Why is it permissible and advisable to counsel a young man or young woman to do irreversible damage to their healthy bodies so that it might conform to his or her gender identity? Why is that permissible and why is that celebrated? Okay. Why must the body follow the mind, but this is completely condemnable, intolerable, and un unadvisable? Okay, listen to this. Why is it intolerable to counsel that same young man or young woman to conform their gender-confused minds to their otherwise healthy bodies? Okay? I think this is a real question that we must ask ourselves. Which is more loving? To affirm a person in their gender identity so that they, they rearrange their bodies to align with who they think that they are, and I would add that I think it's a gender-confused mind, or is it to bring the gender-confused mind in subjugation to the body with which they were created, which God says is actually good? I think the most loving thing that we can do for transgender people and the most loving way that we can minister to su such people is by calling them, counseling them, and helping them to embrace the biological sex that they were created with so, so that means that we need to help them to bring their gender identity in conformity with their body and not the other way around. Now, I understand that from person to person and situation to situation, that will look very different, but the principle remains the same. If God says that he has created humanity as male and female, and that is a very good thing, then we don't have the privilege or the prerogative to overturn that pattern and that design. So again, let me switch gears just slightly. I think a helpful realization for me as I was kind of reading and thinking through this whole thing was to understand that the transgender movement or the transgender moment is not a blip in the vacuum of culture and history, but it actually comes in the context of you know, history and culture and movements and civilization and things like that. So let me just try and kind of lay that out for us just briefly. So if I was giving this talk 50 years ago, I think that... Um, to most people, this would have been a nonsensible, unintelligible conversation. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that it wasn't happening in society, but it would have been on the fringes. And it would not have been a mainstream reality or, or something that, would have been, that we would all been loosely aware of. Even in the past 20 years, I think in the broader sexual revolution, we see, for instance, the legalization of same-sex marriage in Canada in 2005, the legalization of same-sex marriage in the States in 2015, just even five years ago. 
And then I think it was in, in, in 2015 that, that there was an important cultural moment, which I think was a catalyst of the transgender movement and ideology. And some of you might remember this, and that was uh, the release of an, of, a, of an issue of Vanity Fair magazine, and on the cover was former Olympian Bruce Jenner. So Bruce Jenner would have been around 60 years old at the time. He was a former Olympian. He competed for the United States of America, and he had converted from being a man to being a woman. And so clearly on the cover of this magazine, he is presenting himself as a woman, having undergone you know, the necessary surgeries and things like that, the treatments. And on the cover, the tagline was, Call Me Caitlin. Now, it, it would seem that this was quite a catalyst in bringing the transgender discussion into the, into the mainstream. And I think that there are a few things that have taken place in the, in the context of the broader culture over the past few decades, and even you could uh, argue the past few centuries, that, that has led us to this place. So let me try and boil that down for us. So I think first, there's a stronghold of a naturalistic and evolutionary understanding and view of the world, okay? There's a, a stronghold of a naturalistic and evolutionary understanding of the world. What that does is that it removes God from the equation, okay? It just kind of rips and tears him out of our understanding of the cosmos, what that means is that the world that we find ourselves in, and even you and me, we haven't really been created with purpose. We're here just because of blind material causes. And so, for instance, with our bodies, our bodies can't really tell us who we are or what we're supposed to do with them. It can just tell us that, well, that's how we are. It just kind of came, up, came, came to be this way. So what that means is that if there's no God, then there's no fixed morality and there are no fixed standards. There's not even something that we, what we might call Nature. So male and female are not categories to be respected because that's how God has designed us, but rather they're fabrications of, of, of people and societies through the ages, and so we can kind of do what we want with them. These categories of male and female are not inherent within creation. They're not natural things, but they're just kind of socially constructed things, and so we can deconstruct them. We can do what we want with our bodies. We can do what we want with male and female because, well, God didn't design it. God's not even in the equation. So the question is, who gets to decide what you do or what I do with my body? Remember, the body is dispensable because it's just here as a result of blind material causes. Who gets to decide what we do with our bodies? So postmodernism comes in and it answers this question for the transgender movement, and essentially what it says is this. The most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, is your internal knowledge of yourself. You see, postmodernism gives a very high priority to the self, okay? And, and when I say that, I don't mean that postmodern people are selfish or that they're self-centered. That's not quite what I mean. What I mean when I, when, when I say that postmodern gives, postmodernism gives a high priority to the self, what I mean is, is that the most important, the most authentic, and the most real aspect of who you are is how you perceive yourself on the inside, your internal knowledge of yourself is the real you. How you perceive yourself is the authentic you, okay? Which means then that nobody from the outside can come and correct or alter or challenge that. How you perceive yourself, you, is the authentic you, which means that not God, not tradition, not even your own body can come in and correct or challenge your notion of who you are, okay? Uh, let me just read one quote from an atheist French philosopher, and I think that kind of brings all of this together. It says that there is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. 
Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. Okay, this is what this atheist philosopher was saying. Okay? And so this is why the transgender movement is able to say, your innermost sense of your gender identity, that is the real you. That is the most authentic you. And then it's able to turn around and say, if that's the real you, your body is largely irrelevant, it's inconsequential, and so you can bring your body to align with your sense of who you really are. Your gender identity, as, as, as it's in your mind, is what's primary. Your body is kind of inconsequential, and so you can just kind of bring it into alignment with who you think that you are, because that is the real you. I say all of this just to remind us that any moment in history and any sort of movement that we find in culture and society, that they don't happen in a vacuum, but they happen as a result of a current of ideological commitments that are being uh, you know, that undergird society and that are being propelled forward in society. The transgender movement happens and has happened because there are strong ideological currents in broader society that are at play. Let's just move now, finally, to how we can respond as a church to this transgender moment. Okay, so I'm just going to kind of go through these quickly. I don't think these are particularly profound or particularly uh, new or anything like that, um, but just some things to kind of frame our thoughts and maybe give you some thought fodder of how you can maybe respond to this in your own personal life as a Christian. Number one, I do think that we need to treat transgender people with the utmost of respect. Um, I think that goes without saying but I do think that the church, at least in past generations, as it relates to the same sex or the homosexuality issue, and as it relates to the issue, I think that we have done a poor job of showing dignity and respect to people who disagree with our ideology or our lifestyle. And so I think what we must do is that we must immediately stop and repent of any attitudes, words, or actions that would demean or denigrate people of the transgender movement. You see, just as we might see an inconsistency for the transgender person to not allow their gender identity to match and follow their bi sec biological sex, so too it is inconsistent for us to claim the common sinfulness of all people and then to turn around and say, but this particular sin is particularly heinous. That's an inconsistency that we must admit to and be aware of. You see, all human beings, including transgender people, are both lovely and unlovely. All people, all human beings are lovely because we have been created in the image of God and thus are deserving of our dignity and deserving of dignity and our respect. But all of us are also unlovely, including us, because all of us are broken and fallen and desperately in need of Christ's healing. Second, I do think that we want to be careful and thoughtful in the way that we speak about gender. And again, we live in a, in a time where we need to be particularly mindful of these things. You see, let's say 30 years ago, if you were a young girl, and you didn't like girl activity, so you didn't like, I don't know, like having a tea party and playing with dolls, then we, and you liked playing in the mud and being rough with the boys, we probably would have called you a, a tomboy. And we wouldn't have toyed with the idea that your gender identity might be mismatched with your biological sex. 
One of the realities that we have to admit in all of this is that some of the categories that we have in the church and in broader society of what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, are actually just kind of artificial, and they're not necessarily biblical, and so we need to keep them in their proper place. So for example, we identify the color blue with boys and the color pink with girls. Um, you know, we, we say that boys enjoy sports and being active. We say that girls, uh, you know, like playing with dolls and having the tea parties. We say, you know, things like real men don't cry or show emotions and that girls, in, or that women like sharing and talking about their emotions and feelings. We say that men are more analytical, women are more creative. And I'm not even necessarily saying that, that all of these stereotypes are necessarily wrong or unhelpful to say at all. I'm not, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But I, I do just want to point out that they're not strictly biblical definitions of what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl. They're not God's intentions of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman per se. And so while I think it's okay, for instance, to push your boys towards sports or buy your little girl a pink poofy dress, I don't think we want to shoehorn our young people into these rigid, stereotypical categories. I don't think it does us or them any good. So it's okay, for instance, for a young girl to be rough and, and like playing in the mud. It's okay for a young boy to be artistic and musical. It's okay for, for a woman, not, you know, for a wife not to love cooking all the meals. It's okay for men to express their emotions. And so what we need to be doing is that in this cultural moment where gender is such a hot topic issue and such a sensitive subject, and it's such a confused subject, I would argue, in the world, and I think in the church as well, is that we need to be reading our Bibles, and we need to be studying what the Bible says concerning what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, emphasizing and focusing on those things, and giving a lot of freedom and room for all the other stuff. So one thing that I was reading was, for instance, if you're a father, and you care more about your son being athletic than about him being a self-sacrificial loving person, then your view of masculinity is not, is not overly biblical, right? So we just want to make sure the Bible is helping us and shaping us to understand our understanding of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a little boy, what it means to be a little girl. Third, let me say a word to parents with children as well as youth. And you know, um, I'd say that I don't envy you, you know, raising your kids in this culture, but then I'm reminded that I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and they're coming up after your kids, and so here we are. But um, perhaps I can just offer a few rapid-fire suggestions as it relates to this subject. Uh, I don't want you to take them as kind of divine commandments that if you don't do, that you're somehow a bad Christian, but perhaps there are suggestions that you can consider uh, and implement some of those uh, into your life. So first, I think it goes without saying that everything that we have discussed so far applies to your parenting as well. Second, I do think that it's important that we're modeling biblical masculinity and biblical femininity in our homes and in our marriages. Because if our young people don't see biblical femininity and biblical masculinity in our homes and in the church, then they're probably not going to see it in other places in our culture. Third, and probably most of you already do this, but one of the places that the transgender activists are targeting are is our education system. So I don't, I'm not saying this to alarm you, and I'm not saying that, um, I'm not trying to make a, 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 you know, like a judgment on what they are or aren't teaching in the schools, but I'm just saying that I think we should be aware of what they are teaching in our schools as it relates to sexuality, as it relates to gender, because I think that um, some of the places that they're, that they're gonna target in this is going to be through the education system. Third, or fourth, or whatever number we are on, is that I think that, one of the hubs for this movement is, is, is via Hollywood. 
And so, again, I think that it would be wise for us to be aware of the things that our that that young people and kids are being exposed to. So the movies they watch, the, the television shows that they, that they binge watch, uh, the video games that they're exposed to. I just think it's, it's good for us to be aware of these things and to not assume that you know, they're innocent or they're, they're non-ideological because they're made for kids or they're made for teenagers or something like that. I'm sure that a lot of you already do many of these things. And then I also think that it would be worthwhile for you to gain a working knowledge of this subject. It's such a hot-button t- hot issue. And I think that we live in a day and an age in which these conversations with your children, it's not going to be a matter of if, but when. I think that these things are, are pretty permeated into our society. The, the tentacles of the sexual revolution are pretty far-reaching, and so I don't think that we can insulate and protect our children from exposure to all of these things. So it might be worthwhile for you to, to sit down with another Christian or with your spouse or with a pastor and to think through and talk through these issues so that when it arises with your children, you're not caught off guard. And the thing that you want to be able to do in those moments is that you want to be able to offer a compassionate and a nuanced response from the scriptures. And obviously, if you've done some prior thinking of the subject, then you're going to be able to respond in a better way than if you hadn't. And in doing that, friends, don't be afraid of this. Know that there's lots of good resources out there. Know that God's design for humanity and for the sexes is good, and it is clear in the scriptures. There's lots of holes in the transgender ideology. And what you need in order to think through these things is not a massive intellect, but some time to read and some time to think and some time to pray and to sort through these issues and get a working understanding of them on your own. The last thing that I would like for us to that I would like to say in terms of how we can respond as a church is that we must believe and we must proclaim that a call to self-denial is not a call to death, but a call to life. Okay? You see, one of the things that I think that we've talked about throughout the course of this sermon is that, is that the self gets an exalted position. And so to come up against the transgender movement, it, it's seen as very bigoted and transphobic because you're actually telling someone to deny such a crucial aspect of who they are. And they might even say you're, you're telling them to deny their very identity, their very, the, the very core of who they are as human beings. But here's the reality, friends, is that Jesus issues a call to all of us, not just the transgender people, but to all of us, because all of us are broken, all of us are fallen, all of us have temptations, desires, proclivities, patterns of thought that need to be denied. This is not a, a unique call in that sense to transgender people. All of us have temptations and proclivities that we must deny if we are going to follow King Jesus. And here's what he says. You're aware of this. He says in Mark 8, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And what Jesus is saying 
to the world, what he's saying to us, and what he's saying to the transgender community is that if you want to hang on to your own sense of identity, if you want to save that, if you want to determine for yourself who you are, and if you want to determine for yourself the direction of your life, and if you want to determine for yourself your morality and the way that you will live your life, that is fine, but you will end up losing your life. That is a straight path to death. But Jesus says that if you will relinquish and give up that right to establish for yourself who you are, to to determine the direction of your life and determine how you will live your life, if you will give up and relinquish those rights to Christ and thereby losing your life, then Jesus says that in the end, you will find your life. And Jesus promises that if you would come to him, that he will help you to be the best version of you, better than you could ever imagine. Jesus promises that if you would come to him, that though it might feel like death at first, after a while and in the end, you will be able to say, I have found it. I have found my life in this one called Jesus. So friends, the option is yours to the church and to the world Will you trust the transgender ideology that calls you to be faithful to yourself at all costs? Or or will you trust the living Christ whose body was broken for you to deny yourself so that you might discover true life indeed? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. I understand that this is a, a hard subject. It's a hard subject for us to just comprehend and understand. It's a hard subject for us to... To, to, to face and to, to deal with. And so, Father, I just pray for all of us in this room. Help us to understand, to believe, and to live out the truths of your word. I want to pray particularly for those who might struggle particularly with this issue. Father, I pray that you would show them the goodness of your ways. I pray that you would help them to see that your ways, in fact, are best. And that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And not because he wants to lead us to death, but because he wants to lead us to life. So Jesus, we need you in every way to be our savior, to be our teacher, to be our guide, and to be our shepherd, and to be our life. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.